0: KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.
1: California attempts to fine-tune its vaccine rollout.
2: The change in recommendation or focus issued by the governor is an attempt to streamline the process.
1: I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. There's
3: no clear picture on the impact of COVID infections in jails. Are they being counted and are they making it back into death lists that are tracking the scale of the virus um, across California?
1: A proposed law may help the public and the media gain access to police use of force records. And San Diego music great Gilbert Castellanos talks about his comeback. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by...
1: Age before profession. That's the change California health officials announced about the vaccine rollout this week. The plan for the first phase of vaccinations remains in place with healthcare workers and residents 65 and older eligible right now, followed by teachers, farm workers, and first responders. But in the second phase of the state's vaccine rollout, instead of workers in manufacturing, retail, transportation, and other essential industries coming next in line, the state says it will move to an Age-based allocation. And officials announced yesterday that Blue Shield has been chosen to organize vaccine distribution across California. Joining me is Dr. Mark Sawyer, a specialist in infectious diseases at Rady Children's Hospital and a member of the state's vaccine advisory board. Dr. Sawyer, welcome.
2: Good morning. Good to join you.
1: What is the science saying about this virus that prompted the change to an age-based vaccination schedule?
2: Well, I'm not sure it's so much to do with the science of the virus it it has to do with our ability to distribute the vaccine everybody knows that the vaccine has been rolled out a little bit slower than we would have liked and there are lots of logistic challenges so my understanding is the change in recommendation or focus issued by the governor is an attempt to streamline the process
1: Now, workers who have been on the job throughout this pandemic, bus drivers, supermarket workers, people in warehouses who work in close proximity to each other and the public, they say they're being overlooked by this change. Haven't we seen actually repeated outbreaks in supermarkets and manufacturing? Well,
2: we've seen outbreaks in many settings and, and, you know, there certainly are people who would like to make sure that the governor keeps those people in mind as these new recommendations are rolled out. He did emphasize that equity be included in uh, as an important part of the ingredients, which may mean there may be some fine tuning of this age-based recommendation that will make sure that people who are on the front line, who can't have the luxury of working from home will go get the vaccine in a timely fashion.
1: Now, even people who are already eligible are having difficulty figuring out how to get a shot. KPBS has gotten a lot of questions from listeners about where to go, how to get an appointment. Have you been hearing those questions too, doctor?
2: Yes, certainly. It has been a big challenge for people to understand when they're due to get vaccinated and where they can go to get it. Uh, The state has made another change in that area as well. They rolled out a new software program, I think it's called My Turn, which just started this week, which is supposed to make that process easier for people.
1: And what about people who don't have internet access or maybe aren't that tech savvy? How do they make an appointment?
2: There are phone access uh, mechanisms, including calling
1: 211. How should public health be getting this information to the public? Do you think the job that's been done so far has been adequate?
2: I do think public health has done everything they can. There have been challenges at many levels at the communication level from the federal government, the vaccine supply level, four or five weeks we have gone from having no vaccines to having immunized millions of people, which is nothing that's ever happened before.
1: Have you discussed uh, ways, different ways to get the news out uh, among the members of the advisory board? I mean, you know, like billboards, TV ads, uh, a huge advertising sweep.
2: I think lots of local communities and public health agencies are working with community partners to try to make sure everybody is informed about the tier system for vaccine and where vaccine is, is going to be available. Of course, the media plays an important role in getting the word out as well. It has been a challenge, though, because the situation is changing on a daily or weekly basis.
1: Now, last week, state epidemiologist Dr. Erica Pan said it could take until June to vaccinate all Californians 65 and older. Why would it take that long?
2: I've heard more optimistic uh, projections for that. Part of the challenge, though, is, you know, getting the word out, making sure we're reaching populations in all segments of our society and have different ways of accessing the vaccine.
1: It was announced yesterday that Blue Shield will have oversight on vaccine distribution across the state. What effect do you think that will have?
2: I think it does make sense to have a single entity in charge of vaccine distribution that just simplifies the process and there has been some confusion about where different providers are getting their vaccine and who's allocating it so going to a single source is likely to have a positive impact on the smoothness of which vaccine is distributed.
1: Now this week because of your work with Rady Children's Hospital you took part in a CDC discussion about the safety of the COVID vaccines for children. What did you learn?
2: Well, we learned that clinical trials have started already in children down to age 12 and plans are in place to start uh, immunizing younger children in clinical trials just in the next few weeks. So we are gonna learn in the next couple of months whether these vaccines are equally effective in children as they are in adults. We also had a review from the CDC about national safety data from COVID vaccines, which as up to this point have only been administered to adults. And the vaccines continue to be very safe.
1: Some researchers are telling us that we're in a race between the vaccines and the COVID variants. The goal, as I understand it, is to get as many people vaccinated before the more contagious variants start ramping cases up. And there's news today that San Diego has had its first COVID variant death. How do you see the situation?
2: I think you summarized it quite accurately. The more cases we have, the more opportunity there is for the virus to change and mutate and become a variant and become less susceptible to the vaccine. So it's it's incumbent on us to try to get this pandemic under control before that happens. The steps to get the pandemic under control are for people to get vaccinated when they get the opportunity. And whether you're vaccinated or not, continue to wear a mask and socially distance until the pandemic is cooled off. And when the, the number of cases goes down, then we're not going to see nearly as many variants come out.
1: Let me ask you just one more question, because I think this is confusing. When someone gets vaccinated, how long do they have to keep wearing a mask? When does the vaccination take hold, take effect?
2: The vaccine takes effect within two weeks of your second dose. It's fully effective, and there is some effect two weeks after your first dose. But at this point, we are still recommending that even after you've had two doses of vaccine, that you continue to wear a mask. Because what we don't know is whether although the vaccine protects you, it may not keep you from having the virus in your nose. Therefore, you may still be contagious and spread it to others.
1: Okay, then I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, specialist in infectious diseases at Rady Children's Hospital and a member of the state's vaccine advisory board. Dr. Sawyer, thank you very much.
2: It was great to join you.
4: A new iNews Source investigation reveals public officials are using inconsistent tracking methods for inmates who've died from COVID-19. The issues have led to some deaths going uncounted. I'm joined by Mary Plummer, an investigative reporter at iNews Source who covers infrastructure and government accountability stories. Mary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jade. Great to be here. We know COVID cases have been surging. In this story, you highlight that there's no clear picture of how that's impacting inmates and staff inside prisons and jails. Why is there
3: no clear picture? Uh, we found a range of tracking problems. Essentially, agencies use different methods to count inmate deaths. Uh, and during the pandemic, you know, when accurate data is really crucial for public health and controlling the virus, this issue presents some serious concerns. Um, for one thing, we found Southern California counties vary in how they determine whether or not to include inmate deaths in their death totals. Um, San Diego County, for example, only includes San Diego County residents. So, for example, if you die at RJ Donovan, which is the lone state prison located in San Diego County, but you have residency elsewhere, say you're a resident of Orange County, uh, that death would not be included in San Diego County's totals. Not all counties take this approach, Los Angeles County and San Bernardino County both use methods uh, that capture deaths at the facilities, not based on where the person's home address is. But San Diego County is not alone. We also found problems between county uh, numbers and numbers in the statewide trackers. There really is a lack of consistency at many levels. Uh, Essentially, we found if you have a friend or family member who's incarcerated in California, there is no place you can go Uh, to get a reliable, clear picture of how the pandemic is playing out inside incarceration facilities. A lot of the agencies post numbers on their websites, but the data is just not always reliable.
4: So with all that information unavailable, you decided to look at public records. What did you find?
3: Yes, we found that some inmates who've died of COVID-19 appear uncounted. Uh, We identified three prison inmates who were incarcerated at Chekawala Valley State Prison in Riverside County. They were transferred into San Diego County for medical care in Oceanside. All three died there. Uh, They died at Tri-City Medical Center. And all three of those inmates do not appear in death lists that we reviewed for San Diego County or for Riverside. So this really raises into question, um, you know, what exactly is going on with some of these inmate deaths? And when folks are being transferred out of county for care, are they being counted? And are they making it back into death lists that are tracking the scale of the virus um, across California?
4: Do you have a sense of how bad this undercount is?
3: You know, we found a handful of specific people who went uncounted. Through our research, I can tell you that it's very hard to uncover uh, these types of mistakes. There's just not a lot of watchdogging of the numbers during the pandemic. So it's really hard to know at this point, the full scale of the problem. We did see mistakes uh, between death counts at facilities at the county and state level. Counties told us one number and the state trackers show different numbers. Um, I can tell you that one researcher we spoke with at UCLA who is tracking inmate deaths nationally says she believes numbers coming from officials are a dramatic undercount. She thinks that the numbers are quite higher than what we're seeing in official reports.
4: And what's the consequence of that? What's the consequence of an undercount?
3: Uh, experts we interviewed who track these deaths um, say that it becomes dangerous because people who are managing the disease need to know where to send resources. And if death numbers are not accurate, it can give a false view of the virus. Um, during the pandemic, you know, public officials are looking at where to send resources. And if they've got the wrong numbers, um, it can be hard to tell exactly where the hotspots and problems really are.
4: What did you find out about San Diego County when you compared county medical examiner records and death certificates with government lists?
3: So in San Diego County, one of our most notable findings is that a county jail inmate has died of COVID-19. This is the first uh, jail death from COVID-19. Uh, We are the first to report this out. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department is still investigating it and has not yet announced uh, this death uh, from COVID-19 to the public. We confirmed his death through public records and through an interview with his daughter. Uh, His name is Edel Laredo. He was 62 years old. He died at Sharp Chula Vista where he was taken after he got sick at George Bailey Detention Facility, which is one of the county jails. And your listeners may be aware there was quite a serious outbreak there. He was among that outbreak, among the inmates who got sick and he lost his life uh, at Sharp Chula Vista, spent time on a ventilator uh, while he was awaiting trial on drug charges.
4: What about the staff who have worked inside these facilities and the risk of infection they face?
3: Certainly there is a risk for staff. Uh, Experts we spoke with for the story point out that incarceration facilities are quite interconnected with the rest of the community. You can have asymptomatic people uh, coming in and out, whether that be visitors or staff. Really what it comes down to is, you know, congregate settings uh, make controlling the virus very difficult, And also to keep in mind, you know, jail populations fluctuate frequently, which certainly adds to the challenge um, of keeping both uh, inmates and staff safe. And
4: have California prisons and jails implemented any safety protocols during this pandemic?
3: It's a challenge, but they certainly have. Um, Here in San Diego County, they are doing temperature checks for everyone entering the facilities. There are daily temperature checks going on of inmates in custody. Uh, Sheriff's officials also say that they're doing um, testing for inmates. There's an emphasis on hand washing and good hygiene. I should add, though, that there have also been complaints from inmates and family members of inmates saying that some of these safety measures are not taking place. Uh, Here in San Diego County, there have been reports of guards uh, wearing dangling masks and of a lack of hand sanitizer. So
4: what is the San Diego County Sheriff's Office saying about all this?
3: In uh, Edel Laredo's case, uh, the man who died of COVID-19 that I mentioned earlier, they are awaiting the medical examiner's report before they issue a press release on his death. Uh, They also acknowledge that they have not yet reported his death to the state. Uh, And that leaves numbers for San Diego County on the state tracker for jails inaccurate. It's been a little over two months now since his death, and his death has still not been reported. Uh, They do say that they will update numbers as needed once his death is announced.
4: I've been speaking with Mary Plummer, an investigative reporter with iNewsource. She co-reported this story with Sofia mejias Pasco. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
1: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The passage of SB 1421 in 2018 was hailed as a watershed moment for police accountability and government transparency in California. The law says police have to make public records of officer shootings and use of force. But three years later, KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser says, San Diego police agencies are still holding on to hundreds of records That should have been released under the law.
5: The 2016 holiday bowl did not end well for Jason Walker. During the game, he got into a shoving match with a man sitting behind him. Things got even worse when the police showed up. I
2: was backing up, just I was like, that guy grabbed me. Like the guy, I was like, that guy grabbed me, and then putting my hands up in the air. And then they shot me with a taser. Um and A woman yelled, you don't need to taser him, as I was shot. Um, I remember that. But then, you know, they just threw some handcuffs on me and trotted me out of the stadium.
5: Walker spent thousands on a lawyer to get charges of battery on a police officer dismissed. He then sued the city and agreed to a $1,000 settlement. But four years later, he still can't get the police internal affairs investigation records, Related to his case.
6: California
2: law states that when an officer is dishonest or uses excessive force, you can, you know, like get these personnel records pursuant to SB 1421. Um, So I've been trying to get these personnel records.
5: He may be waiting a long time. The law known as Senate Bill 1421 is meant to shine a light on internal police investigations of officer shootings and use of force. But three years after it was passed, the records are still slow in coming. The San Diego Police Department has only released about a third of the required records. The Sheriff's Department, half.
6: SB 1421 said
5: to the agency, you
6: must
1: respond. Uh, But what does that mean? A timely response, what does that
5: mean? Obviously some agencies decided that a timely response is a year or two years later. State Senator Nancy Skinner wrote the law and is now proposing new legislation, SB 16, that aims to fix this records delay problem.
1: So what we've done in SB 16 is given a time certain you must respond
5: by X date or the requester can take you to court. And basically, uh, you know, get penalties. After 75 days, agencies would begin being fined $1,000 a day for every day records are not released. Skinner expects it to pass this year. Officials with the San Diego Police Department and the San Diego County Sheriff's Department say they're releasing the records as fast as they can. They declined interviews with KPBS but sent statements saying the process is very time-consuming and involves thousands of pages plus hours of video and audio. Captain Jeff Jordan with the San Diego Police Department wrote, quote, As SDPD works back in time, many of the files are not in a digital format and are recorded on technologies no longer in use, such as VCR tapes. This makes producing records much harder and more time-consuming. A statement by the San Diego County Sheriff's Department spokesman also said the process is too time-consuming.
6: The purpose of public agencies is to serve the public.
5: Matthew Halgren, a First Amendment attorney at Shepherd Mullen, says these arguments miss the point of SB 1421.
6: Instead of viewing this as some special requirement that um, that has been imposed on them, If they view it as just part of their mission and something that they need to devote their resources to, just like they would any other program, then maybe that will help them um, prioritize this in the way that it should be.
5: Hallgren represented KPBS and other media outlets when police unions unsuccessfully tried to block release of SB 1421 records. As part of the settlement agreement, San Diego police agreed to turn over all its records, video and audio, by this June. Will they make the deadline? Jordan would say only the department, quote, believes it will be in substantial compliance of the settlement terms. Meanwhile, the sheriff's department doesn't have the same hard deadline. But, Holgren says, time is up. Under the California Public Records Act, records must be released at the very latest within 24 days.
6: The media and other requesters of public records are not unreasonable. And so if an agency needs a little bit more time, that's usually fine. But it's been more than two years now. And so um, in two years is a lot more than 24 days. So really, uh, they should be wrapping this process up. Joining
1: me is KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser. And Claire, welcome. Thank you. Why do media outlets want this information from San Diego law enforcement?
5: Right. Well, so there's there's two different ways. One is accountability for specific cases. Um, for example, La Mesa police just released the records um, for the police officer who is charged with filing a false police report uh, over his interactions with a with a black man over the summer, um, and and that officer was fired and. Uh, he's, the, he's now charged with filing a false police report. And so that means that um, those records fall under the scope of, of this law. And so they released, it was about 600 pages, and, and that means media outlets are able to read through and get a lot more information about uh, what happened in that case than we would have just known from you know, the one-page press release that the police department usually sends out. Um, but also, KPBS is using these records for a broader analysis. Um, over the summer we we published based on the records that have been released released so far, we looked at um, and found that when a suspect is a person of color, police officers are more likely to shoot that person. And then when the person is white, police officers are more likely to use alternative force such as a, Bean bags, or a taser or things like that. Um, and we continue to update that analysis as more and more records are released. So it's fully up to date. Um, but but we want all the records so that we can provide obviously a full analysis um, of those trends.
1: Now you've researched some of the records that have been released by law enforcement. Can you give us an idea of what an
5: individual file is like? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. it's. Um, they're usually at least 600 pages long. Um, They don't seem to be uh, organized in any way. Uh, Every file might be different in a different order. Um, And there's tons of pages of just redactions, big black um, text, you know, big black boxes over all the text and then uh, more individual redactions where they're taking out uh, names of witnesses, names of victims, um, the date of birth of the police officer identifying personal information uh, like that. And then along with especially the more recent files, there is a body-worn camera video from the police officers and audio, lots of audio, some, you know, the 911 calls, interviews with witnesses, walkthroughs of the scene, all of that. So it is a ton of information Um, that is available that the police departments and sheriff's department have to go through. um, But it also provides a lot of information for media reporters and maybe people who were involved in the case who, who want more information about what happened. Now, SB
1: 1421, the law requiring police to release these records, is something law enforcement has fought against. Is it just because it takes time to do it, or do advocates suspect there are other reasons too?
5: Sure, yeah. I mean, we actually don't need to suspect, um, because uh, when the police unions challenged this law in court, they basically said, Uh, that it wasn't written in a way that made it clear that it applied retroactively. So they would be happy to release records going forward, um, but not anything in the past. And I was in on some of the hearings, listening in on the hearings um, when that was happening. And the the lawyer for the police union was saying, oh, you know, what if there's a police officer who's retired and has grandchildren? And then these records are going to be released and they're going to see all of the things that that person did a long time ago. Um, so it, it, he made it pretty clear that it's actually, they don't want full transparency about what officers <laughs> may have done on the job, even if it was a long time ago.
1: Now, is it true that most law enforcement agencies across the state have been more forthcoming with records on police shootings and use of force than the San Diego Police Department and the San Diego County Sheriff's Department? And is that because San Diego has a very large law enforcement agency?
5: Yes, the larger uh, departments like... San Diego and LA and San Francisco are not done. They they have more records because they have more officers, more cases, and so they're still providing theirs on a on a rolling basis. I think the LA sheriff is about seventy five percent done. Uh, San Francisco was not wasn't willing to say because they say they don't know how many records they have. Um, and also the ACLU has put in requests, and they say that there are um, you know about. 200 uh police departments that maybe still have records that haven't been released um, and that the big police departments and sheriff's departments definitely are along with san diego still have records outstanding
1: and if the new proposed law sb 16 is approved how will that change the playing field when it comes to gaining access to these police shooting and use of force files
5: well, if it's passed as it's written right now, it will be huge, because right now there isn't much we can do when uh, agencies don't hand over records. So this bill would give agencies 45 days to release the records, and then it would give them, I guess, a 30-day kind of buffer period after that deadline. But then after that, they would be fined $1,000 a day for every day that records are not released. So you know, right now we have um, the police department and the sheriff's department that are a couple of years behind so you can see that 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 would add up and be a big incentive for them.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser and Claire thank you so much.
5: Thank you.
4: environmental experts are giving mixed reviews on Governor Gavin Newsom's two years in office. Some say he's made some important steps on climate change. Others say he's largely been playing defense. As part of a CAP radio series on Newsom this week, Ezra David Romero explains why advocates say now is the time for the governor to show where he really stands on the environment.
6: Back in September, while wildfires and the pandemic were raging, Newsom captivated the world's attention with a bold new climate goal. He ordered the new car and truck market to be zero emission by 2035.
2: The opportunity is limitless for the state of California to compete,
0: not only nationally, but to compete globally. That really was very important.
6: Dan Sperling with the UC Davis Institute of Transportation Studies says the clean car target was a big deal for the state's climate goals.
0: That actually got a lot of attention, not only California, but internationally. And a lot of other countries are now imitating that target.
6: While Newsom's gotten a lot of praise for transportation goals, he hasn't exactly been known as a champion environmentalist. Katherine Phillips is the director of Sierra Club California.
3: To the environmental community, it's been a disappointment. Initially, he wasn't talking about climate change at all. Then he started talking about it, then he had to deal with all the fires. He says he's going to accelerate everything and then sort of put the brakes on.
6: But some would argue that Newsom's lack of environmental progress may be because he was playing defense against the Trump administration's repeated attempts to roll back policies. 2020's record-setting wildfire season was also a major distraction, although Newsom did help create a state-federal partnership to reduce wildfire risk. He also proposed a billion dollars for wildfire prevention in a recent budget, but... A billion dollars is not going to go very far. UC Berkeley Forestry Advisor William Stewart says a billion dollars is chump change because so many agencies want the funds and there are so many potential projects.
2: We may need to do something different than kind of the small-scale projects that we historically know how to do. There needs to be some people with kind of a skunkworks approach. Can, can we look at doing this a different way?
6: Another area where environmentalists say Newsom has fallen short is in water management, says Deborah Sivas, an attorney with the Stanford University Environmental Law Clinic. She says the state's fragmented water bureaucracies could be corralled into one agency. And he needs to make sure farms and cities are getting water needs met.
7: Let's reform water. It's hard, right? And there are a lot of entrenched interests. But if you really want to have the mantle of environmental champion, this is his time to do it. And it just feels like we're just not getting anything revolutionary.
6: Advocates like Phillips of Sierra Club California criticized Newsom for not taking bold action and for being more like Governor Jerry Brown, who was known for his incremental approach to policymaking. A
3: sense among many people that incrementalism isn't the thing they want. They want change, they want clean air. Especially young people want to stop worrying about what the future is going to bring in terms of climate change.
6: In talking to advocates and experts, it's clear they're more interested in what Newsom can do moving forward. Alvaro Sanchez, environmental equity director for the Greenlining Institute, says Newsom needs to phase out fossil fuels faster. He says that will help meet the state's climate goals and improve life for Californians in polluted parts of the state.
0: What I would recommend is not only to hear, but to believe what folks are saying and to really incorporate what they are
6: asking for
2: into our actual strategies
6: with a new presidential administration focused on equity and climate change. Sanchez says the cap is now lifted off the governor. He says this is Newsom's time to meet the moment and be bold on the environment in Sacramento. I'm Ezra David Romero.
4: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego jazz trumpet great Gilbert Castellanos has had a harrowing few years. With career-threatening dental and medical problems and a string of groundbreaking dental procedures, he's finally able to play again. We asked him about the music that got him through the ordeal as well as the artist that shaped his own music journey. Here's Castellanos himself with his story and a playlist of his influences.
8: Over the last few years, yes, I have been struggling with not only some dental issues, but with my lower jaw. I started to experience some severe pain when I would play, and uh, the pain just got worse and worse, and to the point where I literally was starting to approach the trumpet from a standpoint where um, every day was a struggle, uh, I would be very inconsistent with my playing, and uh, some days I would sound great, others, it was just, uh, I would sound like a complete beginner. It's been a long journey with the medical procedures that I've been going through. And Dr. Roy Vector, my dentist, I am extremely grateful for him because he literally made um, devices that have never been made before in order for me to continue playing the trumpet. has has gotten me through this this whole um nightmare in a way. But one particular song that really stands out is a, a tune entitled There is No Greater Love by the great Dinah Washington, which is my favorite version of this particular uh, song. For me it represents me and the music being in love with the music and the love of the music returning the favor It's almost like if you take care of the music, the music will take care of you.
7: There is no greater love than what I feel for you. No There is no greater thrill Than what you bring to me No sweeter song Than what you sing
8: Clifford Brown with Strings uh, was definitely the soundtrack to my life, and it continues to be the soundtrack to my life. It was a particular album that was introduced to me by my father, who is also a musician. I just remember in junior high and even in high school playing along to the records, and uh, one of my favorites to play is Embraceable You. Los Panchos, um, that's what they're really known as, uh, but everybody calls them Trio Los Panchos. But Los Panchos, um, that's really my roots. That's, where I, that's how I grew up. I grew up around an environment where my mother would be singing around the house and my father would play all of these uh, particular songs that I grew up listening to by Los Panchos uh, in, his, in his groups. And that's how I learned about my heritage, my Mexican heritage, by learning uh, beautiful songs, boleros, like Solamente Una Vez. Solamente una vez, amé
7: la vida, solamente una vez, y nada más. Una vez nada más en mi huerto la esperanza La esperanza que alumbre el
8: camino de mi soledad
7: una vez nada más.
8: One of my favorite songs of all time is Reasons and uh that particular song I would play when I had my Hammond B3 quartet that was like a a part of uh, my my set and I would play it probably three four nights a week but uh, I just grew up around a lot of women and and they all loved Earth Wind and Fire and it was just a natural thing for me to embrace that and and to also make it a part of my life and and part of my uh, musical taste For Feruz, uh there's a very interesting story behind this particular song that I that I picked. When I heard her sing, I was just mesmerized by her voice. Um, I was so intrigued by her and moved by her that I started to do some more research on her and uh, found out that she is considered like the musical icon of Lebanon and they would play her every morning on the loudspeakers and there's a song and that's really kind of her hit it's called la Tansani <laughs>
7: في الربا طير وشيع يحكي عن الملاهي في موطني لا تنسني زهر الدروب يعانق الحنايا وينثني وللهوى لحن طروب تنشده الصبايا لا تنسني تعود
8: I decided to adapt that for uh, one of my albums and record it as a jazz version. And that one is also on my album, Underground. And so you can hear a jazz version of a Farooz tune played with, uh, with jazz instruments. She not only was an influence with her music, but also how I approached the trumpet, because when I play the trumpet, I don't want to play the trumpet. I want to sing through my trumpet. I own three copies of Bags and Train on vinyl, and I also have um, the CD version, and I still have the original pressing that I just played to death. You can't even put it on the record player anymore because it won't even play. Uh, but I still own that copy that I grew up listening to, just uh, dissecting it and transcribing uh, songs off the album and memorizing the solos and, you know, pretending that I was in the band. And, uh, you know, it, it's just uh, one of those albums that, that I, I always encourage all my students um, and fellow musicians to, to really listen to because it's one that's uh, more of, a, of a, an obscure album by John Coltrane that doesn't really get a lot of attention. I believe there's a song on there called The Night We Called It A Day. Thank mm-hmm. say that i wasn't able to play the trumpet again i would have found another format to express my my music and to to get to get it out Um, my sound is not in my trumpet my sound is in my head and i can approach music from any standpoint it's it's really uh the way the easiest way to describe it picture the trumpet being the vehicle and then picture your sound which is in your head being the steering wheel so I can just take that steering wheel and put it on any instrument and uh, if I work hard enough I can I can still produce my sound and and uh, get get the the message out through music that way Um, it may take me a little longer to figure out how to play saxophone or how to play piano uh, but it's it's all there it's it's everything is in my head and that's why I love teaching because um, I've always had that um to fall back on in case um you know i ended up being paralyzed or um you know my lips sealed together where i couldn't play any wind instrument so um the power of music is just unbelievable Um, beyond beyond words it's so spiritual and um healing and 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 you can approach it from so many different points of view
4: That was jazz trumpeter Gilbert Castellanos. You can catch him perform on Monday night with pianist Gerald Clayton with the Athenaeum's live-streamed jazz series. And you can find a longer version of his playlist at kpbs.org.